right, hello and uh, welcome to uh, this uh, reading group on Todd McGowan's book, Capitalism and Desire. I was actually just saying that I guessed around 30 people would be joining us and I just want to humble brag that I was exactly right. There's 30, now there's 31. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I've been doing this for long enough that I can guess the kind of numbers of people who are going to come to this. Um, maybe there'll be more that will join us, but uh, I think 30 is a good... It's a, it's a big number, but it'll be pretty manageable because some of you will want to lurk. Some of you will um, want to contribute and uh, there'll be space for all of that. The way this will work is there'll basically be 90-minute sessions. Uh, you can leave at any point. They're being recorded, so you can uh, grab them later on. Um, I'll post up maybe this later this week where everything will be. Everything will be in contained in one place. And... It'll start with me talking for a bit. I'll maybe chat for 20 minutes and then we'll have over an hour for discussion. I'll maybe even chat for less and that we'll see what happens. Um, but for the first session, I do want to kind of contextualize the book a little bit, especially in relation to my own work. Um, and then mention the introduction briefly and then we'll get straight into chapter one. Uh, we could have done the introduction as one of the weeks, but we're already on two and a half months. And so I thought, right, you know, you can do the introduction yourselves and we'll get into chapter one. But just to, just to give you a bit of context about you know, why I think this book is important, um, and it's because from very early on in my own work, uh, really the, the day that I entered into the religious life, which was when I was 17 years old, had a conversion experience. Um, I've talked about that conversion experience elsewhere, but uh, the only thing I'll say about it right now is the, the primary experience was a type of being unplugged from a, a, a mode of desire. Now, I couldn't articulate it in that way, but what I felt was I was being unplugged in some way. And so that marked my work, and it's marked my work right up to today. Uh, things have changed and developed and deepened, and I've, I've gone to different thinkers, but the one thing that kind of holds all of my work together like a thread, like a golden thread, is this notion that there is something about changing the way we orient ourselves to the world, changing the way that we desire within the world. That is of central importance um, to our lives and is actually connected with Christianity. And that's what I've been trying to explore. Now, I went through various iterations of this. My first a uh, concrete iteration of this was ICON, the community, where we met together and it was about exploring uh, the kind of entering into doubt, complexity and ambiguity as a way of uh, not like being drowned by those things, but actually being able to free ourselves from them. So it was already a dialectic idea of going into the darkness to find the light, going into the death to find life. You will see this dialectic at work all the time in this book. There'll be things like finding your satisfaction and dissatisfaction, finding action and inaction. Um, this is dialectics and you're going to uncover it indirectly again and again. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get into why dialectics is so important. But ICON was the first iteration. And I was exploring this type of thinking and I have to say it was probably Slavio Žižek who really opened my eyes um, to kind of give me a theoretical 
uh, underpinning for, for the work that I was doing. I was kind of moving along, finding words, and Shizek was very important in kind of helping me in that and my kind of, kind of more mature work. Um, and then, you know, I discovered McGowan. And in McGowan, I, I, I kind of, he basically was doing exactly what I was trying to do with Icon in a concrete community with real people, which was to help people uh, be freed from a type of frenetic pursuit of wholeness and certainty and oneness uh, and, and find within the, the freedom from that pursuit a type of joy. Um, and so that's, that's my work. And so this book is important because I think that as we read this book, whether you, know, you agree or disagree, that's, that's going to be fun to explore, but you'll get a real sense of the type of being that I think I'm trying to explore within paro-theology. What is a paro-theological subject? Right? What is a paro-theological subject of desire? Um, and my, this is a revolutionary move for me, right? This was always emancipatory, right? From the very beginning of my work, when I was in my early 20s setting up ICOM, was the idea that inaction is action, that there is an emancipatory hope in giving up hope. There is a type of, um, that basically, if you can create a community of people who are detached from the frenetic pursuit of something that will bring a final satisfaction, that community will find deeper joy, will be healthier, and will have healthier relationships with the people around them. And then this is the trick. The trick is if we could have hundreds of thousands of those types of community across the world, they would have a dramatic political effect. And the effect wouldn't be a frenetic pursuit of something better. It's kind of like an embrace of the struggle that is now, that it, they're kind of not future oriented. Uh, and yet weirdly they kind of are, right? And again, that's the dialectic, right? You give up hope and you find hope in the hopelessness, right? You give up eschatology and you find that you've got a promise for the future. All of this is in here. Um, and so the secret of my work early on, right, uh, here it goes, is that it's going to be very hard to set up hundreds of thousands of these types of communities around the world. That's a tough call, right? Making one is difficult. But what if there was already a network of hundreds of thousands of communities around the world that were meeting every week, sometimes two or three times a week, with people who would go there all their lives and bring their kids, right? And what if even if that community was currently a betrayal of uh, this form of life, has actually a narrative that articulates this inherently. And so what if you could inject a, a different reading of the narrative that they're using, a different way of doing their ritualistic life, um, then what, what would happen is you could potentially impact millions, hundreds of millions of people. <laughs> and you're not betraying the narrative that is already in existence. You're simply giving it a rereading. Now, that's the definition of reformation, by the way, where you take the text that is already there, the beliefs that are already there, and you just somehow change the lens through which you interpret it all, and everything seems brand new. So it's both radically different, but also in radical continuity. So that's the work. 
that was the work that I kind of wanted to do and it's not going to happen in my lifetime or anything like that, but that's the work. And um, Todd McGowan and this book will, I think, give an incredibly clear, difficult, but clear if we take our time, articulation of what this type of desire looks like. And parotheology is an attempt to create communities that will be able to enact that. Um, and this book primarily, if the word capitalism kind of like is unhelpful, you can just talk about this as basically the contemporary form of desire that we have, right? So we're going to explore that. That was just a little preamble. Um, very quickly, I want to mention the introduction, uh, just to say there's three things in the introduction, or there's one point, which is kind of the critique of capitalism has gone through two major iterations. The first was inequality, the moral critique that still exists largely today, it's probably still the dominant one, where people critique our current socioeconomic system because they think that and they see how it can breed inequality, right? Now, the response to that is that, yes, it breeds inequality, but the quality of life overall begins to rise, right? So those are the arguments for and against. But, but the critique is inequality um, and poverty. And then McGowan says, what you also saw then post-Freud is another critique of capitalism that came up, which is a little bit different, which is the idea of repression, that capitalism actually breeds a form of, we, we repress our desires, we, we work hard, almost as like Max Weber's capitalism and the Protestant principle, where these Protestants kind of like, it with they, uh, they repressed their sexual desires and all of that, and went hard at work and then developed money and, and industry, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a form of repression in capitalism. And actually we could all be much happier if we could release that repression that is required for capitalism to run. Right. And of course then McGowan comes in with this idea of going like, well, there is a critique that is being made um, in our lifetime that comes at, at a different angle. And Whereas the previous two, uh, which, you know, potentially have good things in them, et cetera, et cetera. But whereas they're very focused on why capitalism is dissatisfying, right? Uh, for the vast majority of people, not for everybody, right? If you're a Hollywood star, you don't have to repress. You've got all this money, you can do what you want. Um, I mean, you have to repress now because of like a lot of movements, but, but you know, in the past, you could do whatever you want, um, right? For the vast majority, uh, it's, relative poverty, financial instability, even if you're in the middle classes in America, you might be three paychecks away from homelessness, right? So there is financial insecurity and repression, right? You're always having to, to kind of like fit within this nine to five regime and, and et cetera, et cetera. But then Tobit McGowan comes in and says something quite astounding and some of these other people like Shizak and says, well, 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 why would we put up with it if it was really so rubbish? Why, why would we engage in this type of desire? Um, and so some thinkers have explored the possibility that actually one of the issues of capitalism is it's, it's profoundly satisfying. Right? It gives us something. It both, it both satisfies and is dissatisfying. And this is kind of what Todd McGowan's going to explore. So he just, in the introduction, he outlines those three things. And he says, right, let's look at the idea that perhaps there is something about capitalism that really connects with us as 
as human beings that is profoundly satisfying in its dissatisfaction. So that's the, that's the intro. Um, let's just jump now into chapter one. Uh, there's so much in each of these chapters. If we had all the time in the world, I would say, let's just do section by section, but we'd be here all year, right? <laughs> so if, if in a nutshell, I could describe uh, chapter one, it starts, well, it starts with two very good points. Let me just start there, right? Uh, one is, um, the, there's an argument that capitalism is very natural. Like this form of desire is very natural. And McGowan says, well, it's not really because animals don't uh, store up more food than they need, except if they're rubbish and kind of lose it all, right? They're not like wanting more and more. They don't want uh, two houses. They want a, a nest by the ocean and a nest that's really, really nice by the, in the forest, right? Animals seem to need certain things and when they get them, they rest and they're satisfied. Whereas human beings or capitalism seems to be, we want more and more and more. But then he also says, but the funny thing is, that's actually one of the strengths of capitalism is capitalism's not very natural and, and neither are we. We're very unnatural. Um, there's an argument that's made mostly by humanists and evolutionary psychologists and others, but that, that humans and animals are pretty much on a par, right? We're, we're just a more highly evolved type of animal. Um, and that's a very common view. If you watch like Joe Rogan or whatever, his guests, you know, these people are all kind of like have this notion that, 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 that human beings are pretty much just complex animals. Um, for me, that's like saying dogs and rocks are the same uh, because there's a qualitative difference, right? And the qualitative difference is language. Uh, we'll get into this maybe at a deeper level today, maybe not, but, but the point is that there are certain qualitative differences in life, right? Being out of nothing, uh, life out of being, consciousness out of life, self-consciousness out of consciousness, reason out of self-consciousness, right? Each, each time these things happen, they are qualitative jumps. They're jumps. And you can't really reduce each level down to the, the last. There's something that you have to do justice to. And what I like about this first chapter is McGowan puts his finger immediately on what Dif differentiates humans and maybe other high, highly evolved life forms, there might be a few other in the world, but from other types of creatures. And it is our insatiable kind of drive, right? That's what the Freudian thing is that we're not instinctual, we're driven. And driven means we somehow weirdly repeat things that are difficult to us, painful to us. We are not satisfied. We, we always seem to miss things, uh, all of that. So, Tom and I starts with that. And then he says, there is a double deception that we seem to fall foul of. The first deception is there's something out there that's going to really fix everything, right? We seem to have this inbuilt, inbaked notion of a lost object, something that's going to satisfy us. And that's a deception, right? So McGowan's going to argue in this chapter that there ain't one, right? Uh, but not because we're unfortunate, but actually because that's the nature of reality that we're divided. Um, so it's not going to be bad news. It sounds like bad news, but again, remember the dialectics, the good news is in the bad news. <laughs> so uh, one is we can't be satisfied by some object. And then the second deception, which is really funny is um, the second deception is, Oh, sorry. Did somebody speak? 
I'll, I'll keep going. Can you, oh, have I frozen? Testing him. Okay, oh, he's just come back in now. Oh, here he is. Somebody should just be talking. You're on mute now, Pete. We can't hear you because you're on mute. Oh, thank you, kids. I appreciate that. Sorry, yeah, I don't know what happened. The Wi-Fi just cut out, so I'm back. Where, where, where did I get to, Kate, before I cut out? Lost object, not because we, we're unfortunate, but because freeze. Perfect. Thank You're you. talking about double deception, yeah. Double deception. Thank you, Ryan. I'm going to mute you all and keep going. <laughs> um, all right, thank you. Um, so, yeah, this, the second deception is that we think we're dissatisfied by not getting that object when actually there's a certain type of satisfaction in not getting it. And that's what keeps us attached is we, we think we're dissatisfied by loss, but actually there's something about the inability to get the object, the loss of the object, the sacrifice that is satisfying to us. And so this keeps us caught up in this type of desire. And the rest of the chapter is kind of like articulating uh, why there's no object that can satisfy us, why barrier and loss is part of desire, how we, this is maintained through the fantasy of the other's desire and looking at other people being satisfied. And so with that, um, I want to just kind of like... Uh, open it up. Um, I, I'm guessing what we'll start by doing is maybe do section by section, but if we did that religiously, we'd never get to the end. So we'll start with the first section, maybe go on to the second section.